You're listening to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, the show for people who leverage the latest in technology to solve agronomic problems. If you're interested in on-farm application of precision ag technology, you've come to the right place. Get ready as we unpack the insights and experiences of the agronomic minds leading our industry forward. Today on the SWAT Agronomy Podcast. There are times where I will add a product like a zinc on a zone one and four on a field, so a hilltop and upper slope, and not put it anywhere else in the field. And we're putting higher rates, more meaningful rates, getting good yield response in year one with doing that, but actually not spending as much money as we would be if we did that nutrient over the entire farm. I'm joined today by crop consultant Mike Palmier, who you just heard, as well as farmer Jeff Bennett. If this is the first time you're joining us for the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, welcome. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm a communications consultant, an ag tech geek, and the host of this show. I've partnered with the SWAT Maps team on this podcast, and we hope you'll join us as we explore where the latest in agronomy meets the latest in technology. Mike Palmier is the owner-operator of Max Ag Consulting, which specializes in field scouting services and works with technology providers like SWAT Maps and Crop Intelligence Soil Moisture Probes. We'll talk about how those two technologies interact here in today's episode. Jeff Bennett is a fourth-generation farmer who's been farming full-time for the past eight years or so in the Dodsland, Saskatchewan area. Jeff grows a variety of crops, including lentils and canola, which will both be mentioned here on today's show. Now, Mike and Jeff not only work closely together as farmer and consultant, but they're actually brothers-in-law. Mike and I have a long and storied history. The first time I met Mike, we didn't like each other very much. It was university. He didn't like me. I liked him. I didn't like anybody back then. But anyways, that's besides the point. (laughs) Um, No, Mike and I went to university together. And I was in my, what I've been, Mike, second year university. Something like that. Anyway, so Mike and I didn't get along very well to begin with and became very, very good friends. So at that time, just to put a little bit of mark in history, I was his favorite Bennett. And then he met my sister... And I became his second favorite, Bennett. And he married her and had beautiful children with her. And he's living two and a half miles away from me right now. And I'm basically Mike's guinea pig farm. When I use my prescriptions, I text Mike every time he's put a check strip in my prescription maps. And I don't know. I think that Mike is pretty darn good at what he does. And we have a different relationship than we did 10 or 20 or however many years ago it was, but it's pretty cool. It's kind of like a scavenger hunt. When I do prescriptions for Jeff, I like to throw in different checks, testing rates and seeding rates and fertility rates and some on off on some micros and whatnot. But I tell him that I have checks in some fields, but I don't tell him where or which fields. And it's a game for him on, okay, where is the check? So as you heard, these two have a great dynamic, and the fact that Mike is able to use Jeff's farm as sort of a guinea pig offers a great chance for all of us to learn from their experiences. So today's episode is going to dive into that, how these two are collaborating to improve Jeff's operation agronomically. You're going to get some insights into their approach, how they're balancing agronomy with logistics, and how they're integrating multiple technologies to capture the synergies that exist between them. First, though, Jeff's going to give some background into their farm's journey into variable rate technology. Another university friend of ours 
he texted me due to a Twitter thread kind of a thing. And he's like, you got to try these maps out. And I'm like, hmm. Because at that point, my background on VR was a bit hit and miss. Dad is a very early adopter on some technologies. He tried about four different ways to make VR work. And it just never really did. It was more the technology than the agronomy or the, the science, I guess. It wasn't really there yet. And then I worked for another VR company for a few months. It just always bothered me that there was nothing tangible to base it off of. You know, and I use this line actually, but a plant is not a soil test. Biomass is not a soil test. So I was in a thread on Twitter and Kelly Belerjean, buddy of ours from university, texted me and we started talking and it just got the wheels turning. And he had used the competitive company that I was using before. And so you pay for a half, you get a half done. And the field that we use is actually the half that I live on and it's dad's most... I think it's one of his favorite fields because it it's so unique. It's got salt coming out of side hills. It's got low patches that are now full of kochia. It's got some of the biggest, deceivingly biggest hills in the farm. It's just a really unique field and no company has ever really nailed it. And so that was the first field we did. And I showed dad the map and I'm being dramatic here, but he had tears in his eyes because someone had finally drawn his field for him. You know what I mean? Like it was, that is exactly what it looks like. So that field's been in VR for, this is the fourth year, Mike, on that, on nine? Something like that. Uh, third, this third is the year. fourth. Third year. This is the third? Okay. okay. So last year was a bit unique in the fact that we had such a good crop coming for canola and it hit a heat wave back, like a lot later kind of a thing, but it didn't quite reach its yield potential. So I don't know. It's really interesting to see data be able to, be used over years when you have actual data to use soil tests. And now with the crop intelligence probes, like you're, you're able to have something that has a bit of history and you can do some, like Mike's done a really good job last year. He did some work where he's, he's actually overlaying yield on top of some of these things. So you have a, again, an actual measurement of what you're doing. He's not joking. He does throw check strips in literally everywhere. So we actually have data to base it off of like why Mike and I work so well together on on the agronomy side of things is we have the same goals and we use different partners to get to it. You know, crop intelligence, swap maps being pretty much two of the major ones, but we're trying to figure out what exactly is our nitrogen use efficiency? What is our water use efficiency? How can we actually make use of some of this data that, you know, and, and for me, that's the whole goal, like trying to get more with less and trying to get more with more kind of a thing. So if we're putting the right rate at the right place, we're sort of doing what the best we can do to maximize efficiency. Absolutely. And Mike, maybe talk about that approach. What is the method to your madness here of all those check strips? You know, how, how are you looking at that to make sure that, you know, what Jeff just said ends up being true, that you get the data that to actually know on a field level? What we're trying to test is test some of our theories to a point. And, and I mean, that that is fine if we're just looking at yield, but yield can be very flexible from year to year. Responses to certain nutrients or seeding rates will be different from this year to next year. And that's the that's the big challenge with agriculture and crop production on dry land is uh, we can't control the weather. So the key with all this in my mind is understanding what our soil moisture situation is, because what we're trying to better understand is, okay, with this crop potential that we have due to 
soil moisture, if we're thinking that is the most limiting factor, what should we have been able to do if we're seeing a response to a higher seeding rate in this field? And we know this is where we're at with soil moisture. You know, it gives us a little bit more background to understand why that is. So, you know, we're doing different uh, specific nutrient uh, checks to understand, okay, can we push this nutrient a little bit higher? You know, one thing that we're looking at is is more of a, an organic type phosphate is basically what it is that uh, doesn't get tied up in the soil. The, the roots uh, produce a, um, an acid that releases it. Because on Jeff's soils, he's got very high pH, high calcium tie-up, very low available phosphorus. So we're trying to, trying to release more phosphorus to those soils because we believe there's a good crop response to phosphorus on his land. And so with the check with it, we're applying that product where we feel like we'll have the best response. So on his highest calcium soils, on his highest pH soils, on his soils that have the least amount of available phosphorus based off a soil test. But we're also checking that and doing some zero rates to understand, okay, what kind of a response are we getting? You know, it is basically theories and testing what we're doing in the field, because if we think that we have this figured out, in 10 years, we're going to be dinosaurs. Mike is a dinosaur. <laughs> Mike's a dinosaur. <laughs> uh, you said earlier, Jeff, you know, the line about a plant is not a soil test. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? I was just saying with using plant biomass as a, as a source of nitrogen rate for a prescription, weeds are also a source of biomass. So, I mean, that's a glaring one for us in some of these salinity areas where you do the only crop growing is a weed kind of a thing. You can pick those spots out and you can manage it a little bit, but it's not efficient. You're not measuring the, the salt, you're, you're measuring the plant. So, I mean, yeah, you can draw a polygon and, and make it a different rate, but because the year has so much to do with the, the crop potential that, you know, if you're using a a lentil crop to get biomass from 2008. It's just, it's really hard to, to gain correct differences between soil types or soil potential when you're, when you're using a crop growth to determine that. So what I like is tangible information and, and the soil is what you're using to, to grow a crop. And then the other thing that really, really, really forgive my French, pissed me off was when they started going to a virtual soil test. I was just like, I'm not stupid. Like, this is ridiculous. And the price is, you know, whatever the price is, but it didn't go down. That's one of the things about swap maps. Like, yeah, they're expensive, but you're actually getting something that you can use year after year after year where it's, it's not going to change. Like, yeah, you might improve some areas and you do it again. You'd have a minuscule difference, but, you know, it took... 10 or 12,000 years to develop this soil since the last ice age. So you're not going to change it in a couple years. But I mean, crops can grow, the amount of biomass and differences in biomass can grow, you know, until this heat hit, we were looking at, we had, we have a really good start here. You know, this heat's going to take a little bit, obviously, and a thunderstorm would save it for a little while and a little bit of rain after would keep it going. We're not in the same spot that a lot of guys are, but I mean, you, you could have do everything right. And something weird could happen and, you know, some areas are affected differently by emergence and then you're, you're showing that because maybe it's a, 
a hilltop that came later than the heat came and it killed the earlier stuff. And then you're using that map and, you know, you need so much babysitting for, for a method that way. And this is, this is doing something that you're going off the soil and then you're measuring the, the nutrients in that soil. And it just, it makes sense. If you're looking to save a little bit of money to get into VR, then sure. But when you really understand how soil and plants interact and you know you need something that's you can look at with hard data and be able to make decisions from there mike let's let's talk more about the soil probe so we haven't talked at all about crop intelligence on this show so maybe introduce us to to what it is and how you all are using it and i'd be really curious to hear how you're kind of using it along with swap maps so with the crop intelligence moisture probe so that's a moisture probe connected to a weather station right and so those probes we install uh, in the springtime, they will initially give us a reading of soil moisture at different depths. So there's uh, sensors at 10, 20, 30, 50, 70, and 100 centimeters. So when what they'll do in a real basic fashion is they'll be able to track when your roots get to different sensors, what they're pulling, what you're losing potentially to evapotranspiration and what's moving through the roots of the plant. And one of the claims to fame with the crop intelligence is a water-driven yield potential number that they have. And it's basically saying, assuming that water is your limiting factor and you have your fertility and your weeds and timeliness and everything all taken care of, you have good emergence, this is what your yield potential is based off of the moisture that you have at certain depths and your soil textures, right? Because all that plays together. And then with the weather station added to it, they will model that throughout the year based off of where you are for accumulated precipitation as compared to a 30-year average for your area. So that's the real basic general idea with it. I really like it in tandem with the SWAT maps because I feel like the SWAT maps are a soil potential map, but your recommendations are only as good as what your yield targets are for each zone and what the actual potential of each of those zones are. And so to better understand that, we should maybe look at water. That's the factor that we give all of our credit to and give all of the blame to when things go right or wrong. So it's important for us to, to track it. And so um, what's really interesting with it since we've even partnered with it is that Croptimistic, who has the SWAT maps, is now building SWAT water maps based off of uh, moisture probes and weather stations, and one of them that they use is crop intelligence. And so now we can model fields for available plant available water based off of textures, topography, water flows, all that stuff that we gather with the swap water process to begin with. And so now when we're doing these checks or we're doing the fertility recommendations, uh, we have a bit of a base model to go off of on where we're sitting at for moisture. It just gives us some more background. And I like that because I find that that, that potential number is a hard one because a lot of times, if things aren't going right, we'll usually blame water for everything. But is it actually water? And what I found through this process, say last year I had a moisture probe on a zone one, on a hilltop. That's always our high and dry spots. And we were sitting on 10 inches of rain into the first week of July last year. We were doing really well. And I was having issues on these hilltops with some plants where they were yellowing off. And the soil moisture probe, if you if you looked at that plant, you would say, oh, it's just moisture. We're, we're drying up. The hills are drying. That's that. 
the moisture probes were saying otherwise. I mean, we had a full soil moisture profile basically up to that 10 centimeter mark, and it was a nutrient issue. It wasn't a moisture issue. But in the past, you always would blame moisture for that and ignore the nutrient. So it's just a, a good way for us to check some of our preconceived biases and understand if we actually are at our potential or if we can do better with what we're given through nutrients and proper water usage. I also like it to check my yield targets, like we were saying, right? What is the, the proper yield target for each zone, right? We, we can't assume that if you're going to have a 50 bushel canola crop, the hill's 40, the low spots or the toe slopes are 60. It just doesn't work that way at all based off of texture, water flow. Does the water drain? Doesn't it? So the way to get better is to base it off of soil moisture, water models, yield history, that kind of stuff. I mean, we don't, we don't want them to completely dictate what we're doing because we want to strive for more. But that's a good start rather than just doing a base yield target for each zone. This is what we always do. This is as good as it's going to get. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, well, Jeff, how about you? I want you to chime in here. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, what, what Mike's doing, I'm curious from your perspective as someone also, you know, needing to turn this into business decisions on a regular basis, how do you decide how far to push things as far as all of these check strips and the experiments you're doing out there? I'm sure Mike could nerd out on it to no end, but uh, how do you kind of determine how to manage it from a business perspective? It's a bit of a balancing act for sure. Like you could spend $10 an acre, 10 times on on your crop and each one's supposed to give you a two to five bushel an acre increase and you know you're not going to get that total when you add all those products together so it is trials and it is a bit of a feel and sort of talking to other people and and being able to you know like i said manage that what works for your logistics on your farm and what what products have you used before and how are these products synergistic? And that's one of the things about these two products is they are so synergistic for this sort of goal of applying the correct rate for the absolute max potential of yield. You have to find out what that max yield is. And you can't do it by just thinking that there's, you know, like Mike sort of said, like this part of the field is 50 and this part of the field is 60 because you don't ever really know that. Until you're changing the nutrients, you don't know what that potential actually is. And, you know, you might be missing one nutrient and it might boost it by two bushels. And then that puts it above this area. And again, that's sort of the other thing to sort of remember in all this. Yeah, like Mike and I have a very similar goal in the fact that we want the most, the most yield with the least amount of nutrients based on an average year or, a, you know, above average year for moisture and figuring out all those numbers. But at the end of the day, where is that economical? So... You know, with a product like SWAT maps and, and crop intelligence, you're you're not spending any more dollars to figure this stuff out. You know your set amount. Whereas one of the projects that I was doing this year, you know, started last year at about this time, a little bit later, I was watching my lentils die from space. I was looking at those biomass maps and and literally counting the amount of acres that were gonna be zero. Yeah, there's so much water and the lentils were drowned out. And yeah, there was some disease there, but the problem wasn't disease. So for our soils, like we're on a three-year rotation for these crops. And we're getting to the point where unless we change what we're doing, we're not going to be able to grow lentils anymore. 
it's so weird. And it's one of those projects that you just sort of shake your head at because some years you look at it and it's like, you'll have one field that's great. And the next field the neighbor has is poor or vice versa. And it's just, anyway, so one of the things I wanted to do was, was to do everything this year on lentils to be able to figure out what is the problem. So I think what happened last year, I don't think this is this product's fault, but we used to use granular inoculant. And then last year, for the first time ever, we switched to polymer. So a lot less bacteria in the dirt. Obviously, lentils fix nitrogen using rhizobia. And if one of those organisms isn't pulling its weight, then the other one dies. So I think what happened is we had about four inches of rain in about three days last year. And I think what happened is the soil got saturated, essentially. And all those bacteria died. There's also some straw issues with, you know, it being our lentils around canola stubble. So we harrowed all of our canola stubble and all of our everything last year, except for the lentil stubble. It was a shotgun approach. And so what I did this year is I threw a lot more biologicals in. I basically double inoculated my lentils, one using a granular inoculant and the other one using a liquid inoculant. We also decided that we were going to put a little bit of starter nitrogen down again. This is where logistics come into play where, you know, we use liquid fertilizer for our nitrogen and our sulfur. So we use the 80% diluted with water nitrogen with the lentils to be able to put a little bit of starter nitrogen down. And Mike was talking about phosphorus. Well, we seed dressed our seeds with a bunch of biologicals that some of them are for root mass and some of them are for phosphate uptake, essentially. The main purpose was to not watch my lentils die in July from the air. And so far best start ever for lentils basically but this heat we'll see again that's the thing you do all this stuff and then something like this comes along and you you know you can apply that to anything you may have done the exact right thing and you may never know because the result isn't what you think it's going to be again it's a management factor of trying to figure out and, and acknowledge that okay i spent more money on my seed this year essentially and I may have done everything right and I still may not see that result. So it's then it's a matter of, okay, well, what, what can I cut or what shouldn't I cut? Because you can't do everything. On my lentils this year, I basically did everything though. Everything from straw management to biologicals to nutrient to variable rating seed and variable rating phosphorus and everything. Again, that's sort of because lentils are such an integral part of our, our rotation that I don't want to lose them. So there is some added, you know, acknowledgement that I need to, I need to figure it out to be able to keep growing them essentially. So, you know, other than what we've talked about so far, kind of what are the big questions or, or topics that, that you're kind of bouncing ideas off of each other right now? We're still at beginning stages of what we're doing to a point, right? You can't just take one year's data and say, oh, well, that worked that year. We're good to go. This is going to be a very long-term project, what we're working on, and, and that will lead us to some other steps as we gain more information and, and understand over multiple years and different cycles uh, on what we're seeing in the field, right? So, uh, you know, it's somewhat more of the same. I think consistency to a point is very important in this because we make too many decisions based off of what worked last year. Uh, and there's one thing that I know is there's two years that are never the same, especially back to back. So, you know, try to get out of that cycle of changing 
our process and our system based off of previous year's info, we need to look more long-term than that. More and more all the time, I think just people are responding to the maps and also the soil test data that we're that we're coming up with because it all makes sense. It's all linear, right? I mean, our hilltops in, say, our area on the heavy clay, we have the highest pH is always almost always on the hills. It moves down into the low areas, right? So because of that, we have our lowest zinc availability on the hills, uh, less of an issue moving down slope. Yeah, it's the same with phosphorus. I mean, there's a lot of different things that guys are seeing with our maps and the soil test and the zoning that they don't see with other providers because a hilltop is lumped in with a zone nine that's half flooded because they have similar biomass. That's what's been a lot of fun with this is the fact that now we can, logistics are limiting this to a point, but there are times where I will add a product like a zinc on a zone one and four on a field, so a hilltop and upper slope, and not put it anywhere else on the field. And we're putting higher rates, more meaningful rates, getting good yield response in year one with doing that, but actually not spending as much money as we would be if we did that nutrient over the entire farm. So that's where my business and where my focus is going is on being very granular with it and placing it in the spots where we're going to get the most return. And that's what we've done on Jess Farm to a point. You know, so it's it's opposite, I would say, of what a lot of the industry is doing, which is let's throw as many nutrients as we can in one fertilizer product because it's bound to work somewhere. And long-term and sustainably-wise, I don't think that works. We need to place it where we're going to get the most response and the highest return and not put place it in the spots where we're not going to get the highest return. You know, have a reason for doing everything that we do. Well, guys, I, I want to give each of you a chance to kind of give some some party comments. Anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about you were hoping to mention or that we did talk about and you just want to add an emphasis on before we let you go. And Jeff, maybe we'll start with you since Mike just got done talking. Um, no, I think for me, I, I'm very happy with the technology that's come out from these partners. It allows everyone to work together, which is another thing that's pretty important to me with Croptimistic and Swap Maps is they're, you know, they're more than willing to work with other companies, which is huge, actually, because no one does everything right. And I think that matching companies with different strengths together only only adds to the the strength of the farm. You know what I mean? So it's definitely encouraging to work with people that have that mentality of here's what we do well what do you do well how do we work together and and what are our goals you know and i think that the more farmers that sort of latch on to that technology as they are even if they don't grow the most bushels year after year or every year they they may grow it consistently better year after year so it's the consistency that's that's important you can have a guy who never grew lentils before and they went 50 and then the next year not be able to grow a consistent 20 bushel crop it's learning all this stuff and being able to apply it in a way that gives you the highest average every year. And that takes partnering with people that do different things well. And I mean, there's a lot of different mentalities out there with certain things, but I think that the base has to be the most important. And that's sort of why SWAT maps is the best base to start with, in my opinion, because it's all tangible. It's all hard data. It's all intertwined between different, you know, my John Deere or farm view or, you know, any of that stuff. 
you're able to move it back and forth and do trials easily. And I think that's what's important. So what makes me the most excited about all of this is I still feel like we're at the beginning of the evolution of the mentality that we have and the products that we're using. We're at the start of understanding what our responsiveness is to certain nutrients in certain zones, how our crop responds, how each individual crop responds differently to different areas, you know, understanding how our water comes to play with this. And I would say even then too, there's a larger evolution with the maps or even the thoughts behind it as far as uh, how that plays into herbicide applications and residual herbicides and how they respond to different organic matter and water regimes and soil textures. You know, I think there's some variable rate applications that we can do there to improve what we're doing. Apply the same product and improve our results or apply less product and keep the same results. So that's what makes it exciting. Another thing that I find really exciting about everything that we're doing is I'm really happy with the partners that I have with my business and I feel like they're all looking to get better. There's an evolution within their businesses too where we're going to consistently be getting better and I'm happy to be along for the ride and adding some input uh, where I can because I think that's really important. That's one of the things with myself with starting a new uh, small business in the industry is, is to keep current and to keep ahead. And so uh, partnering with companies like uh, Croptimistic with SWAT Maps and SWAT Water and SWAT Cam and uh, the SWAT suite of products or, you know, Crop Intelligence will, will help me stay on the cutting edge uh, rather than fall behind. Thanks so much to Mike Palmier and Jeff Bennett for being on the show. This is one of those conversations that probably could have gone on for a lot longer. But if you'd like to hear more from Jeff and Mike, make sure you absolutely follow them on Twitter. Jeff is at Jeff Bennett 44 and Mike is at Mike Palmier. That's P-A-L-M-I-E-R. We'll put those in the show notes as well. But thanks again to those guys for taking the time in the middle of the season for this interview. Really appreciate it. We're just getting started here with this podcast, so please make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. You should find us on all of them, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Please share this episode if you don't mind with friends, and if you have any recommendations for guests or topics or questions, just tweet them to us by using the hashtag SWATAgronomy.